How do you know? Fine, fine, fine. <laughs> yep, fine, fine, fine. <laughs> yep, and you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Yep, yep, we're all fine. Yep. <clears throat> How's your old dad? My old dad? Yep. How's your old dad? Oh, my, my old dad's very well, to be sure. <laughs> good. Good, 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 good. My old dad's okay, too, you know. Yep, yep. My old dad's fine. He's fine. Yep, he's okay. My old dad's okay? Yes, yes, I'm sure he is. <clears throat> yeah. Your, your old dad's okay? Yes. And my old dad's okay. <laughs> They're both okay. Welcome to GoonPod. On this podcast, we look back at the Mighty Goon Show and its principal performers. And on this episode, I'm joined by Paul Abbott, host of, among others, the Head Ballet podcast, which celebrates the novelty record. Hello, Paul. Hello. First question, how's your old dad? He's fine, to be sure. How's yours? (laughs) He's fine. He's fine. So, Paul, thank you for agreeing to come on the show and uh, and talk about uh, a particular goon show. A question I always ask first-time guests, how did you come to discover The Goon Show? Well, it is a good question to ask because it took me probably more time figuring this out than it did sort of putting any other notes together for this episode. Although I suspect it'll sound a little bit like um, one of your previous guests, Tim Worthington's entry point, which is essentially The Beatles. Mm. So being a Beatles fan from a very early age and then going very quickly from, you know, just listening to the music to reading books and watching the films, it doesn't take long before you start seeing names crop up and then sort of also then getting into Monty Python around the same time and then you're starting to see the same names cropping up across things of influences and people who are in things and stuff like that. But um, yeah, so it's... Partly that, but I was trying to piece together when I would have seen, like, the individual goons, you know, for the first time. And I, one of my earliest memories of Peter Sellers, I reckon, is seeing The Mouse That Roared on television. Mm, yep. Um, and I must have seen the Pink Panther films as well when I was little, because they would have been one I would have watched as, you know, a family, the Pink Panther stuff. Yes. Yeah, things like that used to be on all the time, on weekend television, bank holiday television, stuff like that. So I reckon that's where I would have first seen Peter Sellers. Now, Spike, I was trying to work out, were any of his sketch shows repeated in the 80s? Because I feel like I would have seen someone I was very little growing up in the 80s. Quite possibly. I know he did have, he was still, he was still making television programs in the 80s. Yeah. Um, Harry Seacombe, Highway, obviously. <laughs> yes. Every, everyone says Highway. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's just, I mean, with a limited amount of channels as well, of course, and there not being much on TV at that time of the week at that slot. It's not like we sat down to watch Highway at yeah. all. But I re- everyone remembers it. 
being See, on. Yeah, because I grew up, as you know, in, in uh, New Zealand, and yeah. we didn't get highway there. I can pinpoint what it was that introduced me to Spike, which was, as I've said in a previous podcast, his recording of Bad Jelly the Witch. Right, yeah. Which they used to play on the radio, local radio station, when I was a little, little child. Sellers, I, I think I was familiar with him from the Pink Panther. I do remember when he died. Yeah. But Seekin, I know that my aunt was a huge fan of his LPs, Harry Seekin's LPs. And there's, yeah. there's one LP in particular that used to scare me. <laughs> uh, in the sense that it was a picture of of harry uh, possibly at his largest as well and it was just he just fills the picture of him sort of oh yes yeah i think uh, there was his face just, just more or less. face just... yeah it was just a massive face big grin 12 square inches of solid <laughs> cecum <laughs> yeah it used to used to unnerve me um so i think i just kind of i just knew him from from that really yeah, it's uh, it's funny. Yeah, so like I say, I put together a lot of these bits and pieces, and then I remember finding in my parents' record club. Some of my parents are both folkies. Yeah. So they both they ran a folk club in in Cyprus, and they uh, played folk music, and had a lot of folk records. And going through those, as well, I was discovering Beatles records. So I was coming across all this other stuff as well, and coming across uh, an adult entertainment, Spike Milligan with Jeremy Taylor. Great record. Yes. Yes, mm. and. Uh, I literally I, now I now have it in my possession. It's not that my parents are dead. I've just stolen all their LP. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also Jeremy Taylor's own record, um, Jobsworth, which I have, yes, yes, yeah. I have both of them to hand here. Jobsworth is signed to my mum by Jeremy Taylor because she saw him when he was touring, uh, presumably army camps. Mm. But yeah, I remember listening to the Spike Milligan with Jeremy Taylor when I was definitely not an adult. And loving it. And I listened to it yesterday again for the first time. It must have been in tw <laughs> probably 25 years or something. And aside from all the absolute muck in the grooves that I discovered were there, mm. I still could quote most of it along with it. Yeah, uh, Tim Worthington doesn't care for it particularly. Well, we have different <laughs> tastes, Tim and I. <laughs> yes. Uh, but just today, actually, on Twitter, John Dredge, former guest as well, he he, he said he loves that record. I don't think there's certainly not enough love for for that LP than there should be. Uh, yeah. I think it's an interesting one to give you an impression of who Spike is mm -hmm. because you obviously he does some, you know, shrieking goon noise bits and pieces on it, but he also does a lot of his poetry, which runs the entire range of his style. Yes. And uh, I think melancholy is a good word for a lot of what's on that LP actually sort of, uh, and there is bits of Milligan's poetry that absolutely move me to tears. Mm. Uh, beautiful stuff. I mean, cause he, you come away from it thinking this man likes it likes his children he likes children he likes the innocence of children he likes the planet you know he cares for nature he probably doesn't like anyone else yeah um yeah um, but yeah there was also that then i started reading his books in the library as well and realizing that he was quoting from some of those some books getting the books out of the library the war memoirs and stuff like that mm. And they're just putting it all together because, like I say, massive Beatles fan, figuring out George Martin's connection in there, coming across films in later years like The Bed Sitting Room. Yes, great film. Which is an astonishing movie. Yeah. Um, but I do that. But then my earliest memory of The Goons as The Goon Show is a very specific and Walkman based one, in fact. Mm. So I don't know who I got this cassette from. I wonder whether it's like. Um, someone's dad lent it to me or something like that and so i don't think it was an official cassette i think it's like there was a couple of episodes on each side or something someone had just copied 
I have this very specific memory of listening to um, The Man Who Never Was, hmm. which must have been one of the episodes, because as I was walking, I just, this is how specific the memory is. Uh, this is where I was growing up in Stoke as a teenager and walking under the, the bypass, uh, the overpass for the A50 when the shepherd spy joke yeah, came on. Yeah. So I now have this ludicrous memory of that underpass is now, I'll never shake it. It's that is where I heard the shepherd spy joke for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> and then also then the little, the little cut through to where that you get to the train station in my village. I, I associate that with the, uh, don't throw me down. I'm always up here line from the same episode. Yes. Blue Potter, yeah. <laughs> it's weird to have such specific memories of place and jokes. Well, now you come to mention it because I, I gradually collected every goon show I could over the years from, from first hearing the last smoking Sioux game. A lot of the first sort of maybe half a dozen that I recorded, I can kind of associate them with specific places yeah. Uh, there's The Lost Emperor was one of the earliest ones that I recorded, which was from series six. That's the um, Genghis Khan episode. And I associate that forever with my my late mum had a um, converted an old cottage into an antique shop, which she, which oh, she nice. ran for a few years. Um, and it was soon after she died, actually. We were getting the antique shop into a sort of state to sell. And I was yeah. helping my dad with that. And I was listening on my Walkman to the lost emperor just again on a loop I'd, I'd record the shows and then listen to them again and again and again uh, until they were sort of seared into my memory yeah um, so i always associate that with, with getting that cottage ready to sell it's amazing isn't it how you can associate yeah earlier shows it's it's, it's baffling because then i don't really have a memory of listening to them because i didn't start collecting them i never collected them and there would have been big years sort of blocks of years where i wouldn't have heard a single one uh, I think the thing that's revived it was as soon as they started having a decent iPlayer, I think before sounds existed, and they were and Radio Seven and Radio Four Extra as it became, yes, started repeating them constantly, and so you always had some to go to, yes, and so I could go back and sort of piece together, oh, I've heard that one before somewhere in the past, and, and start listening again. But I, you know, in the preparation for this, I mentioned to you, I, I, I sort of I fell and I went onto eBay and got the first box set of the compendium cds mm. Mm. so they arrived the other day so i have a terrible feeling i have an awful collector's instinct of like oh you've got the first one in the series so <laughs> yeah <laughs> there we go but they are great because because over the years you know i when i was collecting them by taping them off the radio or taping copies that had been copied themselves you know what i mean there's yeah. a lot of ropey sounding copies but the ones on the goon show compendium collection are more or less most of them are especially sort of from series five onwards they're more or less crystal clear quality yeah uh well you see i looked inside the booklet and saw andrew pixley's name there oh, yeah. I was like, oh mm. it's archive material that's been looked after well it's pixley's yes. involved so uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah it's great and yeah so series five being this sort of going forward point for them isn't it really it's, it a, is. it's a bit of a line in the sand for the archive yeah um, well it's uh, when it's when transcription services kind of stepped in and started yeah. sending them out to foreign radio stations all over the world. And a lot of them were edited down. But it means that from Series 5, with, with one or two rare exceptions, you know, every every show exists. So when you agreed to come on the show, I obviously asked you what you wanted to cover. And you said that you'd like to talk about the 
first episode of series five, which was uh, show 100, the Whistling Spy Enigma. What's your history with that particular show? What was it about the Whistling Spy Enigma that you wanted to, to cover that one? Well, I like I say about this cassette I had when I was listening to uh, The Man Who Never Was, I have a feeling the Whistling Spy Enigma was on there as well. And so that might have been one. That's one that's always stuck in my head. And it was one of the ones where, even though I hadn't heard it again for years, when I came back to it and listened to it on, on iPlayer or whatever it was, again, I seemed to know it better than I think I know any of the rest of them. I hadn't quite realised, because I'd never sort of, like I said, never collected them and sort of necessarily put them in context of each other. I hadn't realised it was first episode of Series 5 and that Series 5 was sort of the start of the extant run of mm. stories and that, that it's got a few sort of important things about it in terms of the show's development and sort of it's setting its stamp of being the thing it is yes so yeah it's just one i've always known and and yeah and i've listened to it several times in the past couple of weeks to you know make sure it's fully fresh in my mind and i, I love it i just think it's a, it's a great episode it doesn't go completely as mad as some of the other ones it's it's not it's also not totally making up you know short running time it does run a bit short i think it, well, it's it's, just, i just think it's great it's a good example i think it is and it's an example of i mean spike wrote it on his own yeah and for a spike a solo spike script it's quite structured to be fair yeah yeah um he didn't write it in collaboration with with larry stevens and it would be i think from from episode six or seven that eric sykes steps in and gets involved with script duties as well there's a there's kind of a beginning, a middle, and an end to this because there is a definitive sort of punchline at the end, isn't there? Yeah, um, it is, and that's that struck me very much that you can listen to some of them, and you know they they make no bones about the fact that they haven't got a plot or a structure or an ending sometimes. But this one, like you say, it does run like a proper story. You know, it gets given a task, they try and carry the task out. There's an outcome, and. That yeah, that's about as normal as it ever, ever gets, really. Yeah, yeah. So it's from September nineteen fifty four. Yeah, uh, interesting time in Britain. So a good sort of six months before films like The Blackboard Jungle was shown. Well, do you know what? It's um, that cropped up in my mind as well, actually, mm. because of something to do with the music in this. Actually, mm-hmm. Blackboard Jungle often pops into my mind as I run this Ed McBain podcast. And the person who wrote the Blackboard Jungle, the original book, was Evan Hunter, who became Ed McBain. And then they made the movie of it, which obviously had a big, historically, is seen as this quite important thing as a way of taking rock and roll to people. Yes, because of. Um, Rock Around the Clock being on the soundtrack, which is mad because Blackboard Jungle is actually a jazz film. There's much more mm. jazz music in mm-hmm. it than there is rock and roll. But uh, yeah, so it's about that time. It's it, yeah, rock and roll is starting to to push through in odd little places here and there in the states and in the UK a little bit. And I reckon the Goon Show has something to do with that. I I'm not a music skipper. I will state that for the record. No, it's one of my questions. I can cross off the list then. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I've got stuff to say about the music in this episode. Yes. Um, but yeah, no, yeah, September 1954 is like uh, 24 years before I was born. So it's just like someone who's born today going on a podcast in about 40 years time to talk about something like Ladies of Letters on Radio 4 or something. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's mad to look back because... My cultural tastes, the things I love, like like the goons, like right, going back to say the Marx Brothers and things like that, are all that part of the twentieth century, that big sort of block right through thirties, through forties, fifties, sixties, 
mainly for me. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it's odd to think of 1954 being a long time ago because The Goons is, is that strange thing where it's both really modern feeling and also totally of its time and totally of the war. So, yeah, yeah it's amazing stuff. Series five was the first and only series of the Goon Show that um, actually got a proper synopsis written up in the Radio Times plus, yeah. plus Castless. It says uh, how young Ned Segan is sent behind the Iron Curtain to sabotage the Hungarian football team, thus assuring the revival of Britain's prestige throughout the sporting world. Uh, the the plot of the show is that Britain's not doing well in the football quite topical this isn't it as well <laughs> yes the, the yes. time that we're recording are you a football fan i'm not particularly i did i you know i'll watch the international tournaments i'm one of those people who'll sort of settle down and watch the international stuff but i'm not fussed on a particular team obviously mi5 getting involved here with um trying to restore uh britain's reputation in terms of uh stymieing the hungarian football team by putting dynamite into their football boots in order that, I guess, England win the football match by default. The whole show basically revolves around, uh, as, he's, as he's introduced, Captain Harry Seagoon. Indeed. Uh, he and his uh, associates carrying out this, this plan. And he is tasked with doing it by Lance Brigadier Hercules Grip Pipe Thin, who is, in this instance, he is solo. He's got no Moriarty. And he's ostensibly playing a good guy he's he's not a villain yeah. yeah and this is apparently his debut as a character so he'd always been in it as a sort of voice type mm. but this is the first time he's given this name mm. which is it's is significant makes a nice bit of significance for the episode i think the thing that struck me most with the background to this so just before we move on from the football stuff you know it wasn't until earlier today i thought you know what i better check if england had played hungary around this time good idea you know it just it never i never occurred to me that this might actually be about something and it turns out it is because like i say i don't know anything about football mm. especially not football history so but in 1953 hungary are the, like the world's top football team mm. england are really good but we're sort of got a bit complacent and then we play hungary at, in wembley and they beat us 6-3 right and it sends shockwaves through the english footballing establishment <laughs> Because it's like, it's like, hang on, that's not supposed to happen. We're not supposed to lose. Uh, so, Especially not so to those uh, Eastern European Johnnies. Absolutely. The Dutch referee won't stand for rugby tactics, so it's a penalty to England. Alf Ramsey takes it, and it's in the net. And that's how it stays up to the finish. By six goals to three, Hungary, the most brilliant team ever to visit Britain, shatter the unbeaten home record England has held in 90 years of football. So the following year, it's May, 23rd of May 1954, we have a return fixture in Hungary. So right. this is just before this is being mm-hmm. made, this goon show. Uh, thinking, right, well, we'll show them that it was just an aberration. And then they thrashed us 7-1. Oh, jeez. Which right. is still England's heaviest defeat to this day, I believe. So wow. So Spike clearly had, had this in mind when he was writing this. And it just, yeah, I just thought, you know, I better check that. Great research. See, Spike doesn't strike me as being someone particularly interested in, in football or sport in general. That never come no. never comes across, like you say, that would be uh, all over the papers. That would be massive yeah, news story at the time. 
And yeah, I believe they they called that first of those two matches as it ended up being known as the match of the century. Right. So it's uh, got some historical sporting significance that's clearly hard, was too hard to ignore for Spike. Ripped from the headlines. There's a lot in this that I like. Um, some of it's sort of archetypal goon show stuff. So like having a repeated catchphrase in an episode, like pull up, pull up a chair, mm-hmm. just is brilliant because it just... It just they can just drop it. They can just pepper it. It's like the seasoning in the script. They can pepper it with pull up a chair, and it just makes you know it gives it a little flavour of its own. There's a fantastic routine, the locked door routine. Oh yes, so, yeah. So so Seagoon and Eccles go to see Mister Crun, who's locked in his own house, and then it, which is essentially it's the what time is it Eccles routine, mm-hmm. circular logic thing. Mm-hmm. But it's I think this is better than that. It's it's. Uh, it's more fun than the idea of the sort of twist and turn of being inside and outside at the same time and not knowing which side of a wall you're on. And Yeah, I've often thought about that and, and similar scenes in other shows. How, yeah. how easy or how difficult that sort of thing would be to write. Because yeah. it's, it's whether, you, whether Spike comes up with the basic idea and then all he, all he has to do is kind of just tweak it and repeat mm. it. Do, do you know what I mean? Or whether that yeah, yeah, is yeah. incredibly difficult to do, which I imagine yeah. it probably, probably was. And it's great because it pads out a good sort of four or five minutes of the show as well. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, obviously easier to achieve on radio than it would be in any other medium or certainly any visual medium. And the, what I love about the way it's played out in this episode is the first time something illogical happens, you can just hear some members of the audience getting it. Mm-hmm. Just some of them start to figure out what's happened and what the sound effect represents and stuff like that. And then it sort of builds as they keep doing it to a sort of sort of one of these weird sort of brilliantly anticlimactic endings to it. You mentioned the audience, actually, right at the beginning of this show. Something that struck me was Greenslade is called out onto the stage by Neddy. Hmm. And, and you can hear him um, struggling because he's chained up. Yes. And you can hear the audience reaction and it's it's almost, it's verging on rowdy. It sounds like an audience that's been with the goons for three or four years and are just so happy and so excited that they're back. Yeah, it's funny that, that audience reaction because it's clearly they're seeing something. Yes. So the sound effect is chains clanking. Mm. And then sort of Greenslade's quite far off mic, uh, like he's been coming up from a cellar or a dungeon or, or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just wonder what was actually happening on stage that made the combination perfect, that it was that funny for the audience at that moment. Mm. Mr. Greenslade! <laughs> yes, Master? It's not a Greenslade-heavy episode. He crops up here and there to do some linking bits. <laughs> Yeah, oh, it's, it's just a, it's a great start. Plus, it, that start has the phrase "half an hour of continuous radio fighting," which is <laughs> as good a description of the goons as any, I think, really. Absolutely, yeah. That should be on a blue plaque somewhere outside the <laughs> yeah. Camden Theatre or where the Camden Theatre was. Uh, there's also the appearance, and they use it. They use them twice or three times. Webster Smogpule. Yes, yeah. Uh, uh, another time-filling-in device. Yes, the singer who was wheeled out to uh, fill time while the the characters are discussing a plot or a plan. Um, and just as he's about to launch into song, he gets cut off. 
Never mind about them. What about you? You've come for the new, highly skilled, mysterious whistling tune, haven't you? Exactly. You must teach it to Eccles. Good, good, good. Now, Eccles, have you ever heard this tune before? No. <laughs> what do you mean, no? I haven't sung it yet. Oh. Well, that's why I haven't heard it. <laughs> ah. Well, listen. Yep. Got that, Eccles? How'd that go again? <laughs> Did you see where they went? What? My teeth. <laughs> well, this is what I love about the goons, is no matter what, no matter how weird it gets and brilliant and surreal and... and insane mind-bending that's usually the biggest laugh is something like someone's false teeth shooting out of their <laughs> mouth <laughs> where the audience just goes berserk when that happens yes minnie and henry or grit pipe and moriarty or blue bottle and eccles Eey. oh gosh that's a tricky one that mm. it's it's <sighs> my instinct is to go with minnie and henry i think mm-hmm they clearly love doing the voices with each other on those bits. Um, and also the idea that Minnie Bannister is this bizarre rock and roll crazed maniac who can't keep still. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's an excellent, uh, an excellent thing. I, th I, I think strangely enough, the, the thing that doesn't get talked about enough, despite being the absolute heart of it, is just Seacombe's range and his ability to be that Seagoon character and to deal with the bizarreness of playing an English hero but being Welsh in a show written by an Irishman, <laughs> and to, to do all that stuff, and it's he's just like he's like an orchestra of a man. He's so he is. It's it's, it's insane how how imagine him not being there. It would have been Wouldn't anyone have else. Because I, I think this is a, a perfect example of one of the goons' thrilling boys' own adventure stories. Uh, it's even got mm. it's even got Devil's Gallop. It's got the Dick Barton theme. Yes, at yeah, one yeah. point. But no, you're absolutely right about Seekin or Seagoon. He he is the he's the centre around whom all the other characters kind of orbit, isn't he? Paul, obviously, you, you present the uh, Head Ballet podcast, which uh, looks at novelty yes. records. Now we'll come on to the music in the, in the actual Goon show in a minute. But obviously, during the fifties, there were a number of uh, singles released by the Goons. Have you got a particular favourite or particular views on any of those? Uh, well, I've listened to quite a few of them over the years. I mean, my ultimate favourite piece of Goons-related music is the Q5 piano theme, you know, from mm. obviously when that, that turns up, which is an astonishingly brilliant piece of music, which I would want played at my funeral. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just so broken it's like music that's just been put snapped in half and put together wrong it's it's amazing and i think that's just that's uh, well george martin uh i think is the main force behind the q5 piano thing as you know as he is with many of those yeah. things because and they have the weird relationship with with george and spike in that spike ended up going off to decker rather than emi but by that time george martin was a bit of a free agent anyway Mm. Yeah, I only found out the other day through uh, Mike Haskins on Twitter that George Martin was Spike's best man 
at his at yes. his uh, wedding in 1962. Yes, indeed, yeah. Um, and he chauffeured him up to his first wedding as well, I think, as a as a favour when he'd forgotten when he'd forgotten to. Well, he was supposed to be going with him. I think this is right. Like, I read um, All You Need Is Ears, George Martin's book, which was reissued recently. Right. Yeah, he was supposed to get two like nice tickets for the Pullman carriage up to Yorkshire where he was getting married. Yeah. Uh, and got there to the station having forgotten to buy the tickets and found the train was full. So then had to drive Spike from London to Yorkshire <laughs> in his little car <laughs> to get him to his wedding, his first wedding. And then, yeah, I think it was uh, his second wedding when he was best man for him. So they were, yeah, very close. But, I mean, yeah. The Beatles and the Goons as a whole, as we've, as crops up over and over again on the, yeah, it's a whole thing to study in and of itself. It's a wonderful thing. And how, how important George Martin's work with people like Milligan and Sellers is actually to his work with the Beatles, which logic yeah. says it shouldn't be because it's a whole different area of, of creation and, and how you put things together. But it really, really is important, not just in terms of personal relationship, but technical stuff and creativity. Yeah. Well, you told me you listened to the episode that, I did with Manning uh, talking about the Muppet Show. Towards the end of it, Manning, who's an American, had had kept noticing because he was doing his own research and he kept noticing that the Beatles often cropped up, like you say. In, in you can't sort of look up the history of the Goons without the Beatles, yeah, uh, cropping up all the time. And he asked me to kind of try and summarize <laughs> the, the 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 goons and the Beatles relationship, or how they kind of fed in fed into each other. It was so difficult to do. Yeah, um, and it's different. Like I say, it's different strands to it. There's obviously the the importance of the the sense of humor, the shared sense of humor thing with George Martin and the Beatles that comes from their listening to the goons and him working with the goons. And then there's mm. obviously, like I say, the skills that Martin had developed as a producer of these comedy and novelty records he was also a brilliant musician and producer of other records as well but he, he had that in his tank alongside all those skills mm-hmm. that means if the beatles wanted to be silly and strange and try something out he could go well yeah all right that's not weird we've done that on a seller's record or a milligan record yep. we can try something i know where the sound effects tapes are and uh, so it's all so super important and also well. and also in 1967 yeah, the Beatles are unassailable. The Beatles yeah. are uh, absolutely top of the pecking order. Mm. And along comes this scruffy comedian and says, I want a song to put on this record for the World Wildlife Fund. <laughs> and he gets given across the universe. He does, yeah. Which is far and away the best thing on that album that um, that he puts together. So yeah, Spike puts together this, this album and it's got a Beatles original mm. on it. Mm-hmm. you know in in its own unique version as well yes yeah so, mm. so that's amazing and yeah and then of course you can go down the route of their relationship with peter sellers and there's plenty of bootlegs where peter's turning up and they're all in a certain um air quotes relaxed state <laughs> yes and <laughs> things like that and obviously things like the magic christian come along which mm-hmm. is more fascinating than well no it is good but it's i've got it's, a lot i've got a lot of love for that song uh, yeah, as as do I, but it, it's you know it's it's hard to hold up against other things and say this is a great film. As sixties fans, it's yeah, definitely, <laughs> you know, it's a perfect coming together of those worlds and it the excesses of those sorts of filmmaking and storytelling. It's great because it's got the goons, you've got the Sellers and Milligan, you've got a Beetle, Ringo Starr, yeah, and then you've got Cleese and Chapman involved as well. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So you've got the goons, you've got the Beatles and the Pythons. 
all in one film. Yeah, and it's written by Terry Southern, who's like you know, yes. a, a perfect counterculture figure from mm. across the way. Across the way, that sounds like he's on the next road um, you know, from America. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's it's a fascinating thing. It is fascinating. Mm-hmm. So just getting back to the music, the music of The Goon Show itself. Do you want to talk about yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's, obviously you've got your, your musical stings, intros, outros, things like that. But then we get Ray Ellington and we get Max Geldray. And mm. like I say, I am not a skipper. I love listening to this stuff. And I can bring the Beatles back in here as well, because I think something that people don't tend to mention is the Beatles were hearing, if they were listening to The Goon Show, you know, and we know that Lennon particularly was mm-hmm. from about the age of 12, so a couple of series in or whatever it is. They're not just hearing the comedy, they're hearing the music as well. And we know he wasn't sort of going, oh, I wish I could learn jazz. Mm. But they were actually playing a lot of covers of things that were proto and early rock and roll stuff so like the music in this episode that um the ray Ellington quartet do is the abc boogie which is the flip side of shake rattle and roll mm-hmm. which hasn't even come out in the uk yet by this point so you know it's a bit of a, a rockabilly stomp along type yep. thing so he would have enjoyed that um yeah i like i like the ray Ellington stuff and i think the the good thing with both ray Ellington and the orchestra with max geldray is you get some proper virtuosic um instrument playing max geldray is phenomenal mm. you know in terms of his control of a mouth ma- and i i feel very warm towards harmonica slash mouth organ players my granddad used to say he wasn't a good not not max geldray good but you know so a very happy memory is hearing my granddad play the mouth organ so i have a, a very fond of it hearing it on these sorts of things yeah um but yes, they do pick some great things to do, and you, you sometimes get some really great virtuosic guitar playing, some great piano playing, especially with the Ray Ellington Quartet. But like I say, ABC Boogie is is going to come out three or four months after this episode has aired mm. in the UK on the flip side of Shake Rattle and Roll, and of course, the Shake Rattle and Roll turns up in a Goon Show uh, as well. Mm-hmm. It so, does, yeah. And because they wouldn't have heard those records on the BBC anywhere else, because the BBC didn't play records because of mm. needle time yeah. regulations so a great place to hear these you know burgeoning rock and roll through this bizarre light entertainment filter that they, that they get no it's a very good point I, i've never actually thought about that but you're absolutely spot on in terms of lennon would have been just as interested in hearing ray ellington as he would have been blue bottle Yes, I think he would have. I think he definitely would have enjoyed it. Uh, but then, of course, what happens is he starts hearing Elvis and Little Richard, and you know any other music sort of drops away from Lennon's life by that point. Yeah. You know, he's becomes you know wholly down into how hard can I rock? Yes. You know the other. Well, the other thing I wanted to mention about the ABC Boogie that's in this episode, which is obviously the Whistling Spy Enigma, and the Whistling Code is the Hungarian Rhapsody by Liszt. So yeah. in a very mangled whistling version that they do. Yeah. And they very cleverly, the bass playing in ABC Boogie for one verse, the the walking bass line turns into the Hungarian Rhapsody, which oh. is a ludicrously subtle and clever little thing that they've just stuffed into into their arrangement. Amazing. It's, <laughs> it's, it's literally, they just vary the walking bass line for like one pass through half a, half a verse or something like that. And it's like, well, that's, no, that's... I've heard that before. And it's a Hungarian Rhapsody. Dun, 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 dun. Ah. Rather than just a standard walking bass line. So I, I, I doffed my invisible hat to uh, 
Ellington and his, uh, you know, his his guys for <laughs> figuring that out and sticking that in there because it cannot be a coincidence. Oh God, no. Um, during that number, Ellington also he must be talking to Dick Katz. Yeah. He says, "Dickie, get your football boots off the piano." So yes, again, yeah. in- incorporating another element of the show. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I like. I remember seeing once uh, it's some tea room or sort of bookshop somewhere and it had like racks of C- like audiobook CDs and things. I've seen a Goon Show one. I think, oh, I might get that. And it's saying the music has been excised from these episodes. Yeah. And thinking, well, I'm not having that then. <laughs> because you, you you can miss jokes and little references if you don't have the, the music in there. So, I mean, yeah, I'm guilty of when I was younger, tended to fast forward through. I've said this before and I've been castigated for it. You know, well, fast yeah. forwarding uh but as i'm more mature now uh <laughs> and and i'm more aware of the history of popular music as well a lot more aware than i was as a spotty teenager um i'm i'm re-listening to these shows and i'm listening to the music as well i'm listening to Geldra, i'm listening to ellington and uh you're getting a, i'm getting a lot out of it yeah i think it's i think it's worthwhile i think it's all part of the sort of the undulations, the patterns of the show, you know, and so I, I like that. It helps with the flow. It obviously, prob- I mean, the fact that there was musical interludes probably saved Spike's life by giving him sort of like, oh, I don't need to write another eight minutes of script because we've got <laughs> two musical numbers in here at least. And also they punctuated the action because you've got Eccles and Seagoon arguing about Seagoon's old dad. Old your old dad, yeah. Yeah, and then... Grip Pipe basically says, Max Geldre, pull up a chair. And Geldre does his number. And as, as the music fades, uh, Nettie and Eccles are still arguing. Yes. Uh, it's a nice scene changer, having those songs there. The good thing with the goons is you, you can have your cake and eat it because you get everything in there in most episodes. I do like the really, really weird stuff. I, I like it when the, the logic becomes so broken down, so discarded that it's fascinating to listen to that stuff and it's very i find it very very funny i always found those bits in python as well when they allowed themselves to go as weird as they could possibly go mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. were always some of my favorite bits as well but then if you only had that it would be it'd be too heavy a meal of that stuff really so that's why you need something like in this episode where that there's like their real proper joke for this episode isn't the false teeth shooting out funny though that is that's the sound effects joke it's the what is it uh hands up who are you, Mother Brown? Then knees up. Yes. And the, the knees up, Mother Brown. And the, again, the audience go wild for it, just for the way they've just managed to crowbar in <laughs> yeah. with no relevance to anything. No. Knees up, Mother Brown. It's just, I love it. But speaking of knees up, this this being show 100, and, and um, I learned this from the, uh, the great book about Larry Stevens that previous guest Julie Warren wrote. Yeah. For this particular show, the BBC gave them the princely sum of £10 in order to have a party after the recording, which um, which I think with in taking into account inflation would be about 250 quid. Yeah, yeah. So 250 quid to cater for what all of the, uh, probably the concert orchestra, uh, Wally Stott, Wallace Greenslade. Yeah. All of the Ellington Quartet, Geldre, the goons, the goons, wives and family. <laughs> yeah, everyone gets a plastic mug of warm white wine. That's about it. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm sure that was a heck of a blowout, that one. It, but <laughs> yeah, I was, well, I was going to say, yeah, you get the um, these sorts of jokes. So you get your, your 
is surreal world building or world destroying or whatever it is act, action activity type gags you get your your proper gag gags mm-hmm. like a proper joke you know, which i like in some episodes where you actually hear spike sort of going that was a joke <laughs> <laughs> when the audience hasn't necessarily reacted the way he expects yeah and yeah. you can sort of hear him doing it in perhaps eccles voice or something like that but you can tell in his mind he's like that was a joke i <laughs> did we did write that yes um you've got to have those recurring things that keep you coming back and and I think one of my absolute all-time favourite things is Blue Bottle turning up, pausing for audience applause. And it just, it ruins it when the audience actually does applaud because mm. you want to hear him go, not a sausage. Yeah. And just that little deflation of his character, you can just hear. Yeah, because uh, as the show progresses, as it gets to series seven, eight, nine, it's like Arthur Fonzarelli entering the room with Blue Bottle, <laughs> yeah, isn't it? Is, yeah. You don't want that. No, no, because it's yeah, it destroys his goonish nature if he actually yeah. becomes a hero. He has to be a, a pillock. They all have to be pillocks to for it to work. And yeah, yeah, and again, and he interrupts. He interrupts the the end theme tune. The end theme tune kicks in, and then Blue Bottle basically shouts. Stop the tune! I say, is that the end of the game? Yes, you little shattered unit. Oh, that was a rotten game. Oh. I don't like playing that game. Get your playtime for oh, that. Well, that's what I like. I like it when it's he's just he still doesn't understand. Even if he's the <laughs> the contact in Hungary on a really important matter of international espionage, he's still actually just playing a game in the schoolyard. Yes. Yeah. So it's like it's it's a game over, and it's Eccles is like yeah, it's like well yeah. It's yeah, he's brilliant in this episode for the, the short amount of time that he's in it as well. That he gets blown up, of course, mm-hmm. you rotten swine, you. And uh, but the description of him having a shattered area is, <laughs> is a wonderful use of language. It's, it's cover my shattered area. Conjures up some images, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. Yeah. <laughs> he's that but, that uh, voice. He's never going to grow out of that voice, is he? No, not like that. <laughs> But yeah, I wonder if he's interrupting the thing because it does run a little bit short. Yes, I think so. Probably. It's like let's let's crowbar another thirty seconds, if that, out by uh, interrupting the the post theme tune and. Uh... Yeah, the thing I laughed at most in this episode, and I remember when I first heard it all those years ago, this was the thing that just made me lose it. <laughs> was <laughs> the the bit so Moriarty comes in? Grace me, Grundles. It's Villion de Babricon Moriarty Ney Smith, head of the dreaded, highly skilled, mysterious, anti-whistling Hungarian counter-espionage agent. Well said. Thank you. Now, <laughs> what is the highly skilled, mysterious whistling tune? I must know. I won't tell. I warn you. I will count up to a highly skilled 40,000, and then I'll shoot. 40,000? Yes, I've got to go home for my gun. <laughs> and again, that, yeah. that is a perfect spike gag, isn't it? It is. It's fantastic because uh, those time-based gags are quite good because then it follows it up as well, I think, with something about um, we waited 93 years before we pounced. <laughs> yes. And then, But then they have a fight that they say lasts three hours. So in Goon Rules, that 93 years and that three hours and the minute that it's taken you to listen to it are the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's Yeah, I love that. No rules exist. Time, space, anything. It's fantastic. No, absolutely. And again, couldn't be done on TV. Well, yeah, and yet they tried. They did. So, yeah, so Telegoons. So it's 10 years later that they put the Telegoons on. Yeah. Which is just like, that's a long time. 
Well, it was ten, 10 years after this episode, yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But f- what, four years after the end of this, the actual series itself? Yeah, yeah. And have you, have, I guess you've seen some of the Telegoons, have you? I've tried watching them on YouTube because they exist on there in various terrible... I yes. mean, it's it's not helped by the fact that the quality of the rips and the copies online are atrocious anyway. And there's a lot of people have put ones up where they've clearly tried to do some image stabilisation, which makes it even freakier than yeah, it already is. Yeah. Things seem to move in a more ghostly manner. But yeah, you could have been watching Grandstand, get an episode of the Telegoons in and sit down at Doctor Who. So, that's true. Yeah. Well, this this episode was adapted for a Telegoons episode, actually. Yes, that's the last one I tried to watch. I did have a disc with all the existing Telegoons episodes. And I haven't, um, that's in the loft somewhere. So I haven't watched that for many, many years. I will have to dig that out because at some point I'll be covering- you have to face up to it. <laughs> covering the Telegoons. <laughs> My memory of it was, yeah, the puppets were just scary. Um, and it was just kind of had this leaden feel to it. It's I, I found it because they're clearly based on a lot of Spike's doodles and things like that, mm. which work 2D on a page in a script book or whatever, but then just made f- flesh. Don't make flesh. The idea of these things are actually alive, <laughs> um, but made into solid forms to, try, you know, with those. Because you can't, so there's very strange puppets. They've got very much a sort of like a, a educating Archie type mouths on yes. them, but then they're all sort of weird, taut, stretchy skin on them as well, which yes. is something else, like something out of Doctor Who, more like. But it's, it's you're always going to be on a hiding to nothing, trying to adapt stuff to, to the TV from this medium. I mean, the Mighty Boosh obviously was a thing that started on radio, but they were doing it as human beings themselves. They were characters in the thing. They became the mm. characters in the TV adaptation. Mm-hmm. You, you know, it wasn't like they went, oh, we need we need to simulate, make sim- simulcra, I think that's the word, mm. for, of us to, to make this weird world happen on television. They did, they figured it out. It would have been amazing to see um, more goon stuff live action. I'd love to just see more footage of them filming it, uh, um, recording it, mm. you know, recording the radio shows, just seeing the energy on the stage, seeing the the relationship to the orchestra and the sound effects guys and things like that. I would have just, cause the, the last goon show of all is a false version of it that. Is. Yes, it is. So I would have just loved to have seen some contemporary footage of them doing a yeah. whole show. No, absolutely. Right. Cause again, they did a couple for specifically for TV in the sixties. Uh, in fact, I think they did the whistling spy enigma. I think. Uh, yes. I think that sounds about right. And they were just a bit, again, a bit sort of joyless, I suppose. Because perhaps because they knew the cameras were on them, yeah. self-conscious or playing up a bit. I'd, yeah, you're right. I'd have loved to have seen, I'd love to have had like a hidden camera <laughs> just <laughs> yeah. filming, you know, like this show or or any of the other shows from the 50s. I'd like to have seen how much brandy they actually drank when mm. they ran off shouting brandy, <laughs> you know, in the musical interludes throughout the various series. Yeah. One thing that I found while I was doing my research mm. Um, so I was having a little look at, see if I could find any references to this episode in newspaper archives. And what I came across was f- something from the New York and Washington Bureau newspaper of 22nd of October, 1955. And I thought, I've got to mention this. Hmm. And it's from a little section called American Mail, M-A-I-L. And then there's just a paragraph here, and I will read this whole paragraph because yeah. it's fascinating. So the headline is, Goon Pace Beat Them. America heard the goon show last night and thought it was just goony. The children loved it. The, the adults were mainly perplexed. And biggest surprise of all, it was too fast for them. 
Don By, the former pianist with Hoagie Carmichael, said, The goons tried to inject too much material for a 25-minute show. At the American pace, the same material would have been enough for two hours. Wow. Which I'm sure that would have blown Spike's mind a mm. little bit. Mm. Um, Steve Malatak, bartender, if that was funny, I'll put an egg in your beer, which I believe <laughs> is, a, is a wartime phrase that I've, I don't know anything about. Uh, as, as was the style at the time. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Mrs. Jean Murphy, housewife, what was it all about? And then it just concludes with the episode given was the whistling spy enigma. Its catch line was, why don't you pull up a chair? That caught on with the children and thousands were using it today. Oh, so there you go. My Goon debut God. with the whistling spy enigma to the bafflement of all adults. And then <laughs> schoolyards across America full of people saying, pull up a chair. My goodness me. Look at that. <laughs> I, I know the Goon Show did play on certain local radio stations in America. Yeah. But it never took off. It never caught on. <laughs> I'll, put a, I'll put an <laughs> egg in your beer. Yeah. I, that's something to, it's a wartime phrase of like, uh, I'll give you a bonus or something like that. I'll give you something for free. It's just, uh, who would want, I don't want an mm, egg in my beer. I like beer. I like mm, eggs. I've never the twain no, shall it's, meet. It's kind of like cheesy peas, isn't it? You like cheese, you like <laughs> peas, you combine them. <laughs> So, Paul, thank you very much for, for coming on and talking about uh, the Whistling Spy Enigma. Is this, would you say this is your favourite goon show of all that you've that you've heard in any case? I think it is, certainly at the moment, because like I say, it was one that I, I always remembered. And when I came back to it, I remembered it very well. And I do love it. It's, yeah, maybe this, the fact that it's actually got a little bit of a plot in it makes makes it something to... Mm. Uh, it's, you know, gives it its recommendation there. So yes, I think it probably is for me for the moment now. But like I say, if I end up buying all these compendiums, who knows what I'll come across that I'm have, I haven't heard before. Yeah, yeah, there's some great stuff. Great, obviously all the shows, but also there's some great extras. Yeah, in the compendiums, um, outtakes, rehearsals, you know, recordings of rehearsals, documentaries, uh, loads and loads and loads of extra content. So well worth it. So in terms of um, what you do, in terms of the, the podcast you get involved with? Well, the uh, Head Ballet podcast, which is, yeah, like you say, novelty songs, which I'm, I'm using a very broad term for novelty song here because I want it to be, I'm trying to get rid of the stigma, as it were. Uh, Head Ballet pod on Twitter for that one. And I've had some great guests on there and I'll be coming back with some more episodes uh, after summer, hopefully. Mm-hmm. I do the uh, show called The Big Beatles Sort Out with my brother, which has been taking a five random picks look at Beatles recordings from the main catalogue which will be uh, the main part of that by the time this comes out will probably be concluded and but we've got lots of new things planned for that for after summer as well to to keep on digging into the joy of of Beatles music mm-hmm. great and yeah the other one is Hark the 8th 7th Precinct podcast so if anyone is a fan of Ed McBain Evan Hunter the 8th 7th Precinct books We've been doing that for years, going through the main range. There's 55 books in that series, and we're getting on towards the last five um, in the coming months as well. So you can hear my uh, annoying voice everywhere you go if you want to. <laughs> yeah, we were talking just before we started recording. And um, uh, for anyone like me who's obsessed by Columbo, there's an interesting Ed McBain Columbo crossover. As well. Yes, yeah, two episodes adapted from the books, much to the unhappiness of both mm. Columbo and Ed McBain fans, yeah. <laughs> really. Uh, among the sort of nadir, I suppose, of Columbo episodes, those from the, yeah. from the 90s. But there's quite a few strange little links between uh, Peter Falk and Ed McBain over the years, um, which we do not have time to get into now. 
on the Head Ballet podcast. I was listening to some the other day, um, especially enjoyed the episode on Pete and Dud or Bedazzled. Oh, yes, with Mr. Chris Shaw from uh, The Egg Pod, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. uh, another great bit of, you know, super 1960s material yeah. there. It's Yeah, I really enjoyed doing that one. It was a... It was a joy to get stuck into that. Great. Well, listen, Paul, thank you again. And um, thank you, everybody, for for listening. And uh, please follow on Twitter. It's at Goon Show Pod. Also, please follow the Goon Show Preservation Society. They're at the GSPS. Thanks again for listening. And bye.